I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. As you're doing that, let me just say that following the service, the, the members that just joined, the new members, we are going to a luncheon at Ruth Pancook's right up walking through the parking lot here, and so I won't be greeting after the service, so I greet you now, and pray you have a blessed name, and I'll see you tonight at our hymn sing. Um, and the members will just go out the front, and you can drive there if you want, but it's probably better just to walk. It's literally at the bottom of the parking lot, so we'll walk over there together. This is God's holy and inner word, verses 6 to 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, we ask now that you would humble us and by your Spirit speak to us through your word. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned that James taught us and we discovered in his word one of the most faith-assuring and at the same time most faith-challenging truths. It's the truth that God Almighty, our sovereign creator of heaven and earth, our heavenly Father, is a jealous God. He tolerates no rival. Scripture says, you shall worship no other God because the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, Exodus 34, 14. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4, 24. See, God loves us with such passion that he cannot bear any other love within us that competes with his. Of course, we're to love our spouse, we're to love our children, we're to love our friends and our neighbors. Uh, But to set up a competitor with God is an abomination. God is a jealous God. Like a faithful husband, he not stand and allow us to prostitute ourselves with other worldly lovers. That's why it's so faith assuring. Uh, He loves us that much. That's what Scripture teaches. And it's why he gave us the Holy Spirit to draw us into a, a more intimate relationship with him. He loves us, and he will never let us go. But this is also a faith-challenging truth. See, God's jealousy toward us places a high demand upon us. It's complete and utter devotion is what he's looking for. No affairs with pitiful passions are to be tolerated. No yearning after lesser possessions. No lusting after worldly pleasure. He desires complete devotion. And so it's faith-assuring because our God is jealous for us, but it's faith-challenging because it demands absolute surrender. Well, if we're going to love God like that, we're going to need at least two things. We're going to need help, and according to our passage, we're going to need humility. We need help. Of course, in and of ourselves, we cannot do this. We cannot will ourselves into some complete devotion, and so we need help. And that's exactly what James says God provides. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace. 
He gives more grace. You say to me, I don't know if I could ever love like this, Pastor. I mean, I guess I can't be a believer. No, 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 no. He gives more grace. It seems so overwhelming. He gives more grace. I know, Pastor, my, my heart, if I were to confess, you would have to say, how can I be a believer with all these worldly passions? He gives more grace. At times, we may even forget as we're walking in this world that we follow God, he gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. He doesn't just give it to anybody or anyone. That's what the passage says. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, that's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, and it, and it reinforces James' point that God will provide great grace to overcome all our self-centered lives. Uh, only the humble are in the position to actually receive this grace. See, the proud, they see no need for grace, and God opposes such people. And understand, this is a picture of God placing himself in battle array against those who are proud. It's a picture of of God going to war with the arrogant. And that is why the humble and only the humble can live up to the relationship demands of a jealous God. It's because only the humble receive from God the grace needed to live up to that relationship, to live up to those demands. If you're facing a great trial right now, and you say, I, I don't know how to get through this, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to do, God's grace will provide, give you wisdom. Are you struggling with loving someone who, who makes it impossible to love? Have you ever said that? I, I, I've said it to people, I'm sure it's been said to me, I, I love you, but I don't like you too much right now, Right? Well, God says, humble yourself before me, and I'll give you the grace to love them. If there's sin that you can't let go, God says, turn to me. I will give you more grace. Paul said, I have this thorn in my side. He said he couldn't bear it. And and then he said, God's grace is sufficient. The hymn writer sang, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sins and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. We are great sinners, and God's grace is even greater. Now, that, that truth, that important truth of God's grace is, is why the word therefore in verse 6 is so important. What he's doing, James is doing, he's connecting God's grace back to everything he has said so far in chapter 4. Think about it. He's saying, therefore, in light of verses 1 and 3, in light of the, our Christian lust for worldly pleasure, He's saying, therefore, in light of your spiritual adultery, that's what verse 4 says, in light of our propensity to set ourselves as enemies of God, verse 5, I mean verse 4, in light of God's persistent jealousy for our heart and devotion that we don't always give, verse 5, he gives more grace. Therefore, in light of all those things that would make you think we'd pour out his wrath on us, which is what we deserve, he says, I give more grace. 
See, God is not reluctant to give you grace when you sin. Rather, because you sin, God gives greater grace. The point, beloved, is never fear going to God for more grace. Never fear that. Oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. He knows that. He knew it before you realized it yourself. Go to him for more grace. Nothing separates you from his grace except one thing, and that is pride. And so lose your pride. You're not as good as you think you are. In fact, you're much worse. So let it go. And don't, don't grovel in your guilt is the other extreme. Turn to God for his grace. Look to the cross where the grace of God is found, where the blood of the lamb was spilt to pardon and cleanse with him. Look to him for grace. And so we don't stop with our guilt. I feel guilty. We, 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 we don't just stop there. We turn to God and we ask for grace. However, we don't stop with grace either. Now, don't misunderstand that. Uh, we're to stop here. We wouldn't have the complete picture if we just stopped with grace. But I don't want you to misunderstand it. We still need grace. But James is painting for us a picture that is a complete picture of the Christian life. And, and, and remember, it, the focus is on living a pure life. And it doesn't end with God's grace. It continues with God's grace. Don't make a mistake. You'll never outgrow God's grace, and God's grace is sufficient. But in light of that grace that he gives to you, the humbled sinner, what you have is a responsibility. See, this is what happens often in the New Testament. There's what's called the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what God has done for us. Apart from us, we don't deserve it. James has already given us that. And now he gives us the imperative, what we're to do in response. That's the command. Notice in verse 7, he says the word therefore again. Submit yourselves therefore before God. And so let's kind of follow James' argument here. He's saying, look, you're a sinner, but God gives more grace. And so then James tells you how you can receive that grace, secure that grace by humbling yourself. And because he gives more grace to the humble only, and only to the humble, you, you are given a list of commands that you must obey. And these commands that he gives are the means, as it were, of humbling yourself before the Lord. These commands that we find here is what humility looks like. And so you see, your obedience is the proper response to God's grace. It's the response for sure. God doesn't uh, say, do this, this, and this, and I'll give you grace. He gives you grace so you can do this, this, and this. And so it doesn't mean that you're passive when you rely on God's grace, uh, that you're inactive. That's, that's not the meaning. Scripture is clear that we must walk in obedience to God's grace. We, we trust in God's grace and, and continue in God's grace by diligently walking in obedience. That's what James is saying. And as I said, this passage gives us commands. It gives us 10 commands to obey. And, and in rapid-fire succession, he just lays them out. Um, and, and he's saying, this is how you humble yourself before God. And, and each command that he gives here is in what's called in the Greek an aorist imperative. It means that there's a sense of urgency to it. There's, there's this sense of immediate response and obedience. 
I want you to start to do each one of these things now. He's saying, start now. And here they are. You must submit. You must resist. You must draw near. You must cleanse. You must purify. You must be wretched. You must warn. You must weep and turn. And there's nine. And then the tenth command summarizes them all. Humble yourself before the Lord. And notice what he does here. He begins with humility in verse 6. God opposes the proud, which leads to that promise, right? He gives grace to the humble. And then he ends verse 10 with a command, humble yourself before the Lord, and then he gives you a promise, and he will lift you up. And so the key here to the passage is humility. James is calling you. He's pleading with you. He's exhorting you to humble yourself before God, to humble yourself in active obedience. Now, the the commands themselves can be summarized under four headings. Um, We're only going to look at the first heading today. I'll return next week for the final three. But here are the the headings. Uh, Active allegiance. That's what we're going to look at today. That's verse 7. Active intimacy is the beginning of verse 8. Active purification, the end of verse 8. And then active repentance, verse 9. Now, I went through this quick because you're not going to remember them next week anyway. But today we're going to look at the first act of allegiance. Uh, James begins his description of a humble walk with God by commanding what one commentator calls an act of allegiance. And he says, look, there's a two-step process, as it were. First, we are to submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, he says in verse 7. Now, our, our English word submit doesn't quite communicate the full meaning. We get the idea of surrender, right? You, you submit, I surrender. Um, in, in boxing sports or in MMA, if you, su- you submit, you've surrendered, you lost the match. And that's the idea we have when we're passive. We, we cannot uh, do anything. But actually, in the Greek, it's an enlistment language. It means to align oneself under the authority of another. That's what the word means, to submit to one's control, to get into your proper rank. It's the image of an army that, that is in an orderly arrangement under their commanding officer. And let me, I, I shared in the first service, let me share a, a similar image. I don't know if you have seen or not seen the Godfather trilogy. Um, it's, it's, it was mandatory watching in my Italian household. And and in the, in, the third God, in, the, in the third Godfather movie, there is a, a nephew of the Godfather, and he really depicts exactly what James is saying here. I don't think that was their intention, but I think this is what happened. A man named Vincent Mancini, he's the nephew of the Godfather, and he comes in, and he bows down, and he kisses the Godfather's ring, and he says, I am your son, command me in all things. What he's doing is he's aligning himself with the Godfather's family. And that's what James is driving at. We need to bow down. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry. We need to bow down and kiss the son, and we must swear our allegiance. I am your child. Command me in all things. Now, unconditional surrender is the only way to complete victory. We need to remember he is the commander and we are the soldier. He is the Lord and we are the servants. And you must have no doubt, no doubt in your mind whose side you're on. 
In the Godfather movies, that cost you your life. In the Christian world, it can cost you eternal life. Both outwardly and inwardly, you were to submit to God's control, both outwardly and inwardly. And sometimes we do it outwardly and not inwardly. There's a story of a little boy who got punished by his mother, and he wasn't standing during the hymns. And she was very upset. She demanded that he stand up. And and this was his response. Mom, I am standing on the outside, but I am sitting on the inside. And, and, And see, is that us? I'm standing up here preaching the word. I'm standing to sing the praises of the Lord. But am I sitting on the inside? Is your heart, is my heart, is our whole heart devoted to the Lord? You need to align yourself with both God, outwardly and inwardly. In order to submit to God, you must bow before him and honestly say from your heart of hearts, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's how Job submitted. Remember what happened to Job? You remember the book of Job? He lost everything. And, and all was left him and his wife, and she wasn't too happy with him. And, and, and it says, the Lord gi- I mean, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lost everything. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember Mary? An angel of the Lord comes to this teenage girl and tells her you're about to bear the son of God. She's a virgin. And she's confronted with that reality, something that was humanly impossible. As we know, she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Complete submission. Ultimately, if you want to know what submission looks like, the kind that James is calling us to, all you have to do is turn to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there before the moment that he will endure the cross. he's, He's sweating great drops of blood. He's in agony over the prospect that that he's going to have to bear the sin of his sheep. He's going to be forsaken by God. And and he cries out to God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his humanity, Christ is crying out, I know what I'm about to endure, and I don't want to endure it. If you can remove it, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. To submit to God, you must bow before him and honestly say, not my will, but yours be done. Are you able to do that? When something or someone precious to you is lost, are you able to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When the demand that God places on you in life seems impossible for you to fulfill, are you able to say with Mary, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. When, when God seems distant and, and, and the burden that you're called to bear weighs on you like a millstone around your neck, are you able to say with Jesus, not my will but yours be done? See, when you can do that, that's when you truly know you've submitted to God, when you're completely dependent upon him in all circumstances and in all things. See, that's why God opposes the proud, See, pride is a claim to independence. The proud say, I can, I'm the master of my own fate and the captain of my own soul. I don't know how many times 
after I got saved out of the lifestyle I was in, unbelievers, people that were my friends in the past, made the comment to me that faith in Christ is just a crutch to help the weak stand. <laughs> they say, I can, I can think on my own. I don't need some dusty old book or someone to preach to me. I, they've said it to me. The gospel is for people who can't think for themselves, they've said. They always need someone to guide them. They can't do it on their own. So what, how do you respond to that? How do you defend the faith? This is how I defend it. Yep, you're correct. I need the Bible. I need a guide. I need the preaching of the word. I need the gospel. I need the grace of God. I need prayer. I need to think God's thoughts after him, never trusting in myself and my own thinking. He is right. She is right. Whoever says that they are right. See, when you think for yourself, when you set yourself up as your own God, you actually make yourself a fool and an enemy of God. You align your life with the devil. That's what Satan did. That's what he got Adam and Eve to do, to think their thoughts after themselves, not after God. And James is saying, look, may that never be. We need to align ourselves with God. We need to submit to God. And so that's the first point, submit to God. Second, this act of allegiance. First we submit and then we resist the devil. Look at verse 7, resist the devil. We don't align with the devil as those with pride do. We resist the devil. And this is a military term like the earlier term. It means to oppose, to withstand, to set oneself up against. You're not taking the war into the enemy's camp you're, you're manning your defenses. Never underestimate the power of Satan. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. To devour. Resist him firm, firm in your faith. You have to take a stand, not in your own strength, but in the strength of his might. You remember the movie? This one's a little less uh, graphic than The Godfather, The Lion King. I mean, depending on how you like when hyenas get attacked. But The, the Lion King, there's a scene in The Lion King <laughs> in the movie, and the, the little cub lion's named Simba. You know who Simba is, right? He's being threatened by these several large, hungry hyenas who are about to pounce and eat him for lunch. And Simba takes his stand. And you remember the movie, he takes a stand and then he's about to let out his lion roar and he goes, there's nothing there, right? And the hyenas just start laughing and they know they're about to pounce, as I said, and they start advancing. And then all of a sudden in the movie, they stop. Now Simba's sitting there thinking, ah, yeah, finally, they understand. But their jaws drop and their eyes grow wide and, and they slowly kind of slink away. What? What changed? What changed? What made the difference? Well, they realized that Simba's father, King Mufasa, is standing behind his cub. And he's big, and he's strong, and he's not to be trifled with. And that's the image, beloved. The devil is on the prowl like a hungry hyena. He wants to pounce and we're to resist. We take our stand. And if we do it in our own strength, all we got is a gulp. But we do it, we stand upon God's word. But we need God there. 
And see, the, the lion from the tribe of Judah stands behind us, and he's big, and he's strong, and he's not to be trifled with. And so Satan can only do one thing in our presence. When God is with us, he must slink away. Satan's been conquered. Conquered by the blood of the lamb, says Revelation twelve nine. He's defeated already. But he's only defeated when you stand with the one who conquered him. When you stand with Christ and in the strength of Christ and the power of his spirit and live according to his word, you are victorious. Your victory is secured. But understand, the battle does rage on. See, Satan's defeat has kind of thrown him into this frenzy, as it were. He still rages. He knows his time is short. And he will not stop waging war until he's cast into the lake of fire by God himself. And so James is making a declaration here. He's, he's giving you a battle cry. He sounds the alarm. He's saying, prepare for war. Be battle ready. This isn't playtime. This is wartime. Resist, resist, resist. Submit to God and resist the devil. Now, the military language used here by James is also used by Paul as well. He uses it in Ephesians 6, where he teaches us how to resist the devil. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, James said. So here's Paul's military strategy. First, he, he, he recognizes that it's a war. Uh, again, something we must never forget. We're at war here. Second, he identifies who the true enemy is. See, he says, he tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our enemy. Oh, yes, we have to take a stand against the foolishness that we see in government and culture today. But understand Behind that is Satan, as it were. Behind that is demonic thought. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual in nature. And, and this enemy, we're told, has formed their ranks. They have sworn allegiance to their prince, Satan, and they are ready to attack and make war against the Christian. And sometimes they do that for the foolishness that you see in our culture. But it's always them and, and so Paul understood this. He understood who the true enemy was. And so he provides a solution to fight the true enemy, and that is put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so we're in this evil day. We see it all around us. We're... we're, we're we're just, uh, just amazed at some of the things that are being said and done and the attack, specifically, even in our culture, although we don't get persecuted nearly as much as other people are saying, yeah, you, oh, you're getting it tough over there. They, people have been dying for their faith all along, but we're starting to see it in our culture. And we need to recognize it's a war. We can't forget that. And we need to identify the enemy. And that is these rulers. It's a cosmic war. And then we put on the right armor. And the armor is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. So we know where we stand. 
We put on the boots, which are the gospel of peace. We, we, we must put on the shield of faith so we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. We put on the helmet of salvation. And then here's our weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Those are our weapons. And that is the uniform that, that the Lord's army wears. One writer said, when we resist dressed for battle with the garments of truth, righteousness, peace, peace excuse me, faith, salvation, and the word of God, Satan knows whose side we are on, and he will flee. You don't you need to call a Catholic priest to cast out that demon. You stand on the word of God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Not maybe, not until you make that call, not until you, you've done this or that. Resist the devil, and he will always flee. And the best example of this act of allegiance, of submitting and resisting, is found in Matthew chapter 4. It's Jesus' temptation. You remember the story prior to his temptation? Jesus is driven into the wilderness by who? By the Holy Spirit. And, and he fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he, he's been submitting himself to God and God's will. And Satan's now on the prowl, and he knows Jesus is hungry. Jesus was fully God and fully man in his humanity. He's hungry. And so Satan mounts his attack. He, he goes after where he believes Jesus is the most vulnerable. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And how does Christ respond? He takes out his sword and he says, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan tries two more attacks each time. Christ responds, it is written. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord God and him only you shall serve. Jesus submitted himself to God and resisted the devil by looking to the scripture. And what do we read happen? Then the devil left him for another opportune time. And that time was at the cross where he thought he defeated Satan and actually Satan was defeated. That's what it means to submit and to resist. That's how we handle all temptation, submit and resist, consecrating ourselves to God and and, and immediately responding with active resistance. Of course, there's more, and we're going to hear about more next week as we pick up in verse 8. But I, I, I focus on this point here because I fear we don't take the battle seriously. James isn't using a military metaphor by accident. He is being deliberate. He wants us to know that it's wartime. And we're we're starting to sense that now. We didn't. When I look at the church, and I don't mean us, but when I look at the life of many Christians, even in my own life at times, it seemed that all too often we don't realize we're in a war. We so easily give in to Satan's temptations, he don't even realize we're in a skirmish. He doesn't even have to fight. We give in. We're so captivated by worldly affairs, by civilian affairs, that we're blinded to the war that wages in the spiritual realm. We're like the prophets that cried, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then all of a sudden, we're caught off guard when our culture arrives where it is today and only getting worse. The battle's waging, 
and we don't realize we're in a battle. Can you imagine a soldier all of a sudden just perplexed? They're, they're uh, befuddled that they're in a fight. What's going on? No, they're a soldier. That's why they were sent in the first place. The fight is not the problem, beloved. The fight is evidence that God's grace is at work in your life, that you have been enlisted. You need not be surprised by the fight. Rather, you need to do what? Humble yourself, turn to God, ask for more grace, and he will lift you up. He will give you the victory. Now, I'll close with this. Let me just say this. If you've never sensed the battle... Of course, like people in countries where people are persecuted, they sense it a little bit more. But if you've never sensed the battle without or within, if you've never entered the fray, chances are you actually haven't enlisted. Uh, You're here, but you really haven't put on the armor of God because you're not part of the army. You never experienced God's grace in the first place. Satan uh, doesn't go to battle with his own troops. He he has no need to devour you. He already has you as his prisoner. And and so, to the non-believer here, whoever you may be if you're here or or watching, I say, choose today whom you're going to serve. Today. Now. Now's the time to choose. You have to make a decision. Now's the time to pledge your allegiance. James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. God opposes the proud. Oh, I can do it on my own. God opposes you just by that statement alone. There's many other reasons I could go into. We don't have that kind of time. But just that statement alone that I can do it, I will get it. I had somebody say to me once, well, God will need me someday, and then I'll follow him. God does not need you at all. He may use you, but he doesn't need you. God opposes people to think like that. He literally goes to war with them. And and believe me, now you may snicker, now you may laugh, but a day will come when the lion will roar. A day will come when God himself will pour out his wrath, and you don't want to be the person who said the gospel is for people who can't think for themselves. And so turn to Christ before it's too late. Believe, submit, and resist. Let's pray. Father, we as believers uh, struggle with seeing the war, enjoying the things of this world, and not not listening spiritually, as it were, not digging in your word and seeing what's going on around us. And now it's getting more blatant. And so I pray, Father, that we would uh, put on the full armor of God, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would resist these temptations, we would resist the devil, and that, Father, that we would take up your word in advance. In Christ's name, amen.